National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. Pope Francis recently called on the international community to ban surrogacy. His words are a welcome aid to pro-life advocates in Michigan, which is about to become one of the most surrogacy-friendly jurisdictions in the world. That's what Genevieve Marnon, Legislative Director of the Right to Life of Michigan, told the Register. Genevieve joins us today. But first, we turn to another topic that Pope Francis has talked about recently, and most of us don't like to think about this topic, and that's the reality of hell. Father Jeffrey Kirby joins us now. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register and Catholic News Agency, and your host here on Register Radio. I'm joined by my co-host, Matthew Bunsen, who is EWTN News's Vice President and Editorial Director. Hey, Matthew. Hello. Good to be with you. Hello. Not a happy topic. I know. Not a happy topic. And um, Father, Father Jeff Kirby's like, I always get these, these dense topics. Um, but <laughs> well, I'm glad he does. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Father Kirby, you have, um, have been with us most recently uh, talking about another uh, one of these topics. Pope Francis wades into, you're the pastor of Our Lady of Grace Parish in Indian Land, South Carolina. And Father Kirby's also a moral theologian and a missionary of mercy appointed by Pope Francis. So in many ways, it's good that you are here to talk about um, this topic of hell, um, especially as a missionary of mercy, because it's something that we all really need to be thinking about. But let me set up for a second what happened, right? So in an interview um, on Italy's most popular primetime talk show, uh, Pope Francis said he likes to think of hell as empty, and when asked by the interviewer how he imagines hell, Pope Francis gave a response, a brief one. He said, well, I'm going to say it's not a dogma of faith. My personal, this is my personal opinion, but I like to think of hell as empty. I hope it is, Pope Francis said. And this kind of caused a little bit of a stir. Um, and I think we're going to hear why that causes a stir, um, sometimes causes confusion, things said in short bits like this that have a lot of theology. But Father Kirby, thank you for joining us on this topic. My pleasure, Jeanette. Thank you for the opportunity. So, as, as I said, he's talked about, Pope Francis talked about this many times. Uh, he has uh, most, uh, maybe famous, famously had a conversation with uh, Eugenio Scafari, who is a late Italian journalist, the editor-in-chief of L'Espresso, and uh, he's an atheist, and they used to have these conversations, and he would often cobble together from memory the words of Pope Francis, and they talked about hell at times. But now it's his own opinion, um, that it's his own words. We're hearing him speak about what uh, he thinks about hell. How, how should, what's your take on his comments? So first, I, I think what surprises me and, and maybe just uh, catches most people off guard, even before he mentioned hell, just the fact, the fact that the Holy Father, Vicar of Christ, would say, well, it's not the dogma of the Church, but my opinion is. And that's just a little startling, because one would hope that the shepherds of the Church, that their opinions match the dogma of the Church. So just that dichotomy in itself is is you know, just disturbing. It, it explains a lot in terms of, well, you know, it seems as if Pope Francis has opinions, by his own admission, he, he's indicating, that are different from the dogma of the Church. And, and 
and again, just you know, at times we just want you know that that singularity of voice. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of voices already in this world. There's a lot of challenges to the dogma of the church in this world as it is, and the faithful sometimes just want the teachings of the church and the shepherds to echo those teachings faithfully and without needless theological opinion. But that, that's the first point. And then the second point in terms of, of his teachings on hell is, you know, the, the teachings on hell, you know, obviously when we speak about a place of eternal separation with God, a place of spiritual torment, um, you know, that's serious enough, but the teachings on hell are intimately connected to our understandings of freedom, love, moral responsibility, cooperation with grace. You, you can't just remove one piece from the overall teaching, what we refer to as the analogy of faith. You can't just take one piece and say, well, the others all stand intact. No, if you remove hell or say, I, I, I wish that hell were empty, then what you're ultimately saying is, I wish human beings weren't free. I wish human beings didn't have to cooperate with grace, and so on. And, and obviously, I don't think the Holy Father intended that. But we just have to be careful in terms of how we dissect or remove parts of the Church's teachings. And let me just say this in terms of hell. The Lord Jesus preached more about hell than he did about heaven. The Lord was more explicit in his description of hell than he was of heaven. No one in all of salvation history spoke more of hell than the Lord Jesus. I like in in John's Gospel, chapter 8, the Lord tells us, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky. What he's telling us is he saw the rebellion of Lucifer. He saw the creation of hell. It's real. It's horrible. So horrible that he would come on a rescue mission in order to give us the opportunity by his grace to not go to hell. Right. Right. That's what he did. And and so this is what, what really kind of causes the confusion is that the Pope, he's, he's admittedly saying, I'm not, I'm not preaching theology here. I'm just telling you what my hope is, right? He's saying, I, I hope it's empty, which would presume that, um, that uh, uh, God is going to be merciful to everyone, um, even if maybe they're not repenting, right? Because we can see around the world um, all of the destruction, all the sinfulness of our world and, and the people in it. So that's where we sort of get confusing. Well, confused. What is it? Uh, um, is, is he just going to be merciful to everyone in the end? It doesn't really matter how we live our lives. That's not what the Church teaches. Uh, Father Kirby, what does the Church teach? Yes, I, I think that, you know, when we start using mercy, mercy in, that, in that context, uh, what, what we've done is we've redefined the word. Because biblically, mercy and justice are twins, and they smile at each other, and they enjoy being in each other's presence. In order to authentically give mercy, justice has to be fulfilled. This is why the eternal Son of God died on the cross, to fulfill justice, and then so offer we, the children of God, the gift of mercy. So justice is is not opposed to mercy, as if, well, you know, if, if you say no... There's responsibility, there's accountability, there are consequences. Well, no, no, you have to dismiss all that, because it's just mercy. Well, that definition of mercy is very difficult, different than the biblical definition of mercy, because that mercy is actually a type of licentiousness or, or moral permissiveness, where basically that understanding of mercy is you can do whatever you want, and there are no consequences, and that's it. There's no accountability. 
And the regrettable part about that is that level of mercy, that understanding of mercy, allows for no authentic love. It allows for no authentic expression of virtue. And ultimately, it doesn't allow for the cooperation of grace. So sometimes when I, when I hear how mercy is being used, you know, in reference to these questions about hell and so on, uh, it's a definition of mercy that is not within our tradition, not within the Scriptures. Is there also a, a kind of crisis in eschatology and the four last things with hell in particular today? Oh my goodness, yes. You know, I'll tell you, Matthew. You know, certainly with, with hell, but but you know, I'll tell you, even with heaven, I've heard so many Christians say, "Well, when someone passes away, well, they're in a better place." Well, you know, I don't want to go to a better place when I die. I want to go to heaven. <laughs> you know <what> I, mean? <laughs> like, I want to be in the fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, so so even heaven is kind of diminished a little bit, but but certainly hell. You know, in fact, we're told by peer research that most Catholics do not believe in hell, which means ultimately they don't believe in freedom, they don't believe in love, they don't believe in the cooperation with grace. And then you can begin to question whether they really believe in the saving power of Jesus Christ. So... Definitely, I think the whole question of eschatology uh, is, is in dire need of, of some stronger uh, teaching and formation catechesis. Yeah, because if we don't understand our goal, if we don't understand our purpose, which is to get to heaven, then we're not going to understand our lives. You know, St. Thomas Aquinas, one of our great teachers, he says, you know, uh, the, the end does not justify the means, obviously, but the end orders the means. Very true. So I know I'm going to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. It orders everything else. I give mercy when I don't want to. I go the extra mile in selfless service when I don't want to. I want to die to myself because I know what the goal of my life is, and I need to live and order my life in a way so I can get there. You know, uh, Matthew mentioned the four last things, and of course that's death, judgment, heaven, and hell, and those are certainly things that are realities that we have to understand. I mean, we, we might want to hope that hell is empty, but we have to live like we believe uh, it exists and it's, it's, it's some place that we could go, right? It, it, it could be a destination. We have to, we might hope it's empty, but we have to live like we understand what it is and how you actually get there. So, Father, yeah. we, we don't have a lot of time left, but if, if someone's like, okay, I really don't understand hell. I really don't understand what you mean by freedom and hell, right? What do they need to know? Like, what's the nugget they need to walk away with to say, okay, Hell is real, and I don't want to go there, so how do I have to live? Yes. So the simplest, and I think perhaps, perhaps the most piercing way of understanding hell is, we exist, and we are called to love. Hell is existing without love. With all the mm -hmm. torment, and the suffering, and the insecurity, and the restlessness that comes with that, it is to live forever without love outside of the, the presence of God, outside of the presence of, of our loved ones who, who have achieved glory in heaven. So it is to be without God, without love, forever. It will never end. It is a horrific, terrible place. And I'll just say this, Jeanette, like, for us, we have to believe and live as if heaven and hell are real, because we know they, they do. And I'll say this, as shepherds of the Church, myself as a local priest, I have to make sure I preach that to the faithful. We live in a relativistic world. We live in a world that tells us that 
God doesn't exist, right, wrong, aren't real, prayer has no power. The faithful need to hear a consistent and clear voice from the shepherds. They don't need theological things. They're challenged enough. The faith is dismissed enough in our world. There has to be a robust reinforcement and clear teaching from the shepherds of the church. So, in other words, if we have to, if, if, have, if, if hell is the absence of love, if it's the absence of community and communion, if it's utter loneliness and, and isolation, then obviously we need to live in relationship, in relationships that are founded on communion, not only with uh, ourselves and with others, but with God, right? Um, and I think that that's where we need to turn our direction, is how do we have to live uh, if, if we don't want to end up in hell? Father Kirby, this is, these are important topics. Uh, I know <laughs> they're difficult to talk about, and the last time you were on, we were talking about um, same-sex blessings, another challenging topic. Um, yeah. But as as I said when we were joking around before the show, you know, these are sad topics, but the more we talk about them, uh, hopefully the merrier we will be in the next life. So thank you for being with us. My pleasure. God bless you. When we come back, we'll be joined by Genevieve Marnon, who is the Legislative Director of Michigan's Right to Life, and we will be talking about surrogacy. This is EWTN on Register Radio. Stay tuned for more. For nearly a century, the National Catholic Register has been moving minds, moving hearts, moving souls, and enriching our readers' lives by spreading the truth of the gospel. Today, that tradition continues with award-winning journalism that goes beyond any secular news service while bringing much-needed light and clarity to the issues and events that affect you and your family's future, all with faithful and courageous reporting guided by the teachings of the Catholic Church. It's more important than ever to join Catholics who depend on the register. Get six free issues today online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. Welcome back. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register and Catholic News Agency, and I'm here with Matthew Bunsen, EWTN News's Vice President and Editorial Director and my show host, so co-host, I should say. And we're talking about another topic that Pope Francis has recently spoken about. He talked about surrogacy and how it should be banned, basically prohibited within uh, around the world. Uh, and these were welcomed words um, in many, many places where they've been battling uh, the, the popularization of surrogacy. And one of those places is in Michigan. Uh, which currently bans paid surrogacy but does not enforce unpaid surrogacy contracts. So today we have Genevieve Marnon, who is the legislative director for uh, Right to Life of Michigan, where she works with legislators and policy staff and other stakeholders on advocating pro-life policies uh, in, in the state fighting pol- or fighting policies that are anti-life. And that's what uh, she's doing here. Uh, so, Genevieve, welcome to the show. So much for having me. I really appreciate it. 
Absolutely. So I know you spoke recently uh, to one of our reporters at the Register, Matthew McDonald, and I saw your your comments there and I thought, okay, I need to have her on to explain the importance of this moment. And and he uh, he said, you said to him that uh, Michigan is is really about to become one of the most surrogacy-friendly jurisdictions in the world. Tell me more about what is happening there. Who would have thought? Right. So a nine-bill package was introduced in the fall, and it was fast-tracked through the Michigan House. It is now in the Senate waiting final approval. If it gets passed in its current form, Michigan will be on par with California, for example, with regard to surrogacy, surrogacy tourism, the infertility um, networks, and IVF multi-million-dollar business. Um, and they're just waiting to come here in Michigan. We're one of the few states that has not opened the doors to the multi-billion-dollar um, IVF industry. So Pope Francis's recent words um, must have, have helped you out, I hope. I mean, how has this been used, and, and has it been helpful to have a world leader, uh, a, a, you know, the leader of the Catholic Church, say something so direct? I was very pleased with Pope Francis's statement on this. He's not wrong, and in fact... Michigan is more in line with the rest of the world and that uh, places like Canada, Australia, and England have laws very similar to ours where altruistic or non-compensated surrogates are allowed, but compensation, in other words, renting wombs, is not allowed in our state. And that's more consistent. Most European countries don't allow any form of surrogacy, but most of the United States does. Yes, and I guess we have to discuss um, what the Catholic Church teaches about surrogacy. I think that's very important um, to know that uh, the Church acknowledges uh, the that infertility, infertile couple, the, the the suffering of infertile couples, um, and encourages them, uh, but condemns in vitro fertilization and surrogacy. The Church does not um, support uh, these. Uh, types of um, attempts at fertility, and and that's partially because, uh, on one hand, it is uh, disassociating the the sexual act, the procreate from procreation, uh, and it's taking um, it's taking that out of the picture. Uh, it's a bit of acting like God, uh, and that is is something the church has really taught very strongly about um, for for many many years. Um, but there are also very practical reasons, um, Genevieve, why surrogacy uh, is is a problem. Can you share with us how you educate um, legislators and the public about uh, surrogacy? Sure, Jeanette, you're absolutely right. There are moral issues attached to this, and the Church has spoken about uh, the sanctity of human life and the marriage bond and all of that. But from a very practical standpoint, there are non-religious reasons why these bills should be opposed. And the number one reason is that surrogacy contracts exploit women. Vulnerable women are almost universally exploited by these contracts. We saw this play out in places like India and Thailand, where poor, vulnerable women were preyed on and targeted to be surrogates for wealthier intended parents. And they were being used and left in many cases to bear long-term consequences from that, so much so that the governments of both India and Thailand Thailand pulled back on their surrogacy laws and said, no, we're done with this, using our our women here as a rent-a-womb. 
So that's number one. And the second reason is the child. People forget that the child is the product of this. And these children, as we've seen in some, some instances, are, are literally bought and sold. I mean, I think we, we quit putting contracts mm-hmm. on human lives in 1865 in this country, didn't we? Right, right. So, and that's the connection that you sometimes see, um, especially in places uh, where uh, uh, the the practice flourishes. You you see people, um, I guess, uh, trying to make known the trafficking, human trafficking that can occur in in places uh, where it's it's wildly popular, right? Surrogacy is popular. What is the connection? What, what have you seen and where are some of these places where um, it, it slips into a form of human trafficking? Well, you know, everybody likes to point to, you know, third world countries and things like that. But I want to point out a case that took place in California, in the United States, oh, wow. about a decade ago. The FBI, they busted a baby-selling ring. So these third-party fertility brokers connect surrogates with intended parents, and they sometimes don't even know each other. They never meet. The surrogate never meets the intended parents. It's all brokered through a third-party attorney. Well, in this particular case, the uh, third-party attorney was soliciting surrogates, impregnating them with donor eggs and donor sperm, and then finding finding intended parents to sell these babies Mm -hmm. to after they were born. So, you know, it's, it's a problem, um, and this is why Michigan's law, the current law as it stands, does allow for a family member or a friend, somebody that you know well, who can altruistically carry a child for you. But then you have to go through an adoption process, and that's child protective. The state gets to look in and make sure that this child is going to a safe home, it's not being trafficked, trafficked and that's why we think our law should stay the way it is. I just want to jump in on that for a second because it's, you know, while we're talking about what Catholic teaching, because this is a Catholic show, what Catholic teaching is on surrogacy, we're not, you're not fighting for Catholic teaching in law. Basically, the law already allows surrogacy. What you're fighting, it sounds to me, is the commercialization of that practice. 100%. When you commercialize something, when you put a price tag on something, it, it, you, you will get a lot more of it. But moreover, these bills, this nine-bill package, goes far beyond allowing paid surrogates. It, has, it changes and upends all of our parentage laws in the state of Michigan. It strikes the word mother and father from most of our parentage laws. So, like, birth certificates are going to say parent one and parent two, mm-hmm. no longer mother and father. So um, it allows for two non-married people who don't even necessarily live in the same home, who are not genetically related to the child, to contract a third-party broker, find a surrogate, and own a child. So the, the, the way they're selling this bill package is for those cases, like you were saying, those unfortunate situations where mom and dad desperately would like, or husband and wife would desperately like to have a child, they're, they're infertile, they can't have this child, they get a surrogate to carry their child. It's genetically related to them, her eggs, his sperm, and then they, they take possession of the child. That's not what these bills will allow, though. They will allow a whole lot more than that, and these are very dangerous. Mm-hmm. So what's necessary here to fight this, not just in the U.S. in particular right now, but globally? 
Well, we really need to highlight, Matthew, thank you for asking that. We really need to highlight the fact that surrogacy, contracted surrogacy, commercial surrogacy, always exploits women. Oh, not always, but most of the time, because there's almost, without exception, a disparity between the income level of the intended parent and the surrogate. So it tends to prey on that. But you've got to remember, too, donor eggs, that's a big market. You have to pay women for their eggs, but that in the consequences of going through egg harvesting have profound physical consequences on the egg donor. Um, so those are things that we need to highlight. And moreover, the child. You know, that's the thing people forget about. Surrogacy puts the business of, it's in the business of baby taking. It really is, both regard to um, big fertility and the big, you know, big abortion, big fertility. They're kind of two, two sides of the same coin. But they regard children as an adult-pleasing commodity instead of the vulnerable people whose rights deserve to be protected. So uh, you mentioned the child. Um, there, I, I'm guessing, and I haven't followed this very closely, but surrogate children, children who, who were born through surrogacy, what have they said on the issue? Well, it's interesting. There's an entire group that's called Them Before Us, or Us Before Them, excuse me, Us Before Them. And it's, it is comprised of children who were born of assisted reproductive technologies mm-hmm. and surrogacy. And this idea that somehow or another their genetic background is not important. They don't get to know who their genetic parents are because there's often used donor eggs and donor sperm. So they, they don't believe that this is how it should be, and they are vocally outspoken about it. Yeah, so they're speaking out. So that's very interesting. I'm sure you can find uh, people on both sides of that issue, you know, children born of surrogacy on both sides, but it is important to know that there's a group uh, that that is really speaking out to make their experience known. How's it going in Michigan? Well, unfortunately, the bills were introduced and they were fast-tracked and pushed through in a matter of 16 days in the in the Michigan House. Wow. They now sit in the Senate where they, there is a two-seat uh, majority, uh, Democrat majority. Not that you have to be a Republican or a Democrat on this issue, but um, it seems to be very much being pushed by the Democratic Party. They're all mm-hmm. bill sponsors. So unless people really speak up about this and really point out the dangers involved to both the women and the children, um, I'm afraid these may get pushed through. Unfortunate. It's very unfortunate. Well... Uh, Genevieve Marnon, I am very grateful for your time. Genevieve is with uh, Michigan's Right to Life, and we're talking about surrogacy. She spoke to Matt McDonald, on, uh, uh, whose article was published at ncregister.com. You can find that article there. It's titled, Pope's Condemnation of Skyrocketing Surrogacy Market Touches a Nerve with Some and Encourages Others. Genevieve, thank you so much for being with us. Jeanette, Matthew, thank you so much for having me. Remember, for more news, analysis, and commentary, check out the National Catholic Register online at ncregister.com. Thanks for joining us here on Register Radio on EWTN. Together with Matthew Bunsen and today's producer, Ace McKay, I'm Jeanette DeMello, and I pray until next week, may God bless you.